When Orford Church today is part of the Oldborough Festival for today's Discovering Music, when we're going to be looking at the music of Carlo Gesualdo, Prince of Vinoza, born sometime round about 1561 and certainly died in 1613. He's one of the most famous, or rather infamous, figures in the history of Western classical music. Indeed, he was the subject of a study in the 1920s by the British composer Peter Warlock and his friend the musicologist Cecil Gray called Carlo Gesualdo, Musician and Murderer. We'll be taking a look at that and what that involves in a moment and we'll also be examining the music more closely with the vocal ensemble Exaudi and their director James Weeks. Well, to clear up this story first of all, it's said, and there are various versions of this, that Gesualdo found his first wife, Maria d'Avalos, in bed with her lover. It seems that someone had tipped him off. And there and then, he either killed them or had them killed. This created immense controversy at the time. Some people naturally took the lover's side. But there were others, it seems, who weren't quite so disturbed by what Gesualdo had done in principle, more by the fact that it seems he hadn't actually killed the lover himself, but got one of his servants to do that on his behalf, which was felt to be rather unsporting. It was much more befitting a nobleman if he'd actually done the deed himself. But if that seems very strange, there's a story of the roughly contemporary Italian sculptor and goldsmith Benvenuto Cellini is said to have killed a man for farting in his face. And the jury, when he was summoned, promptly acquitted him. It was considered that he'd done the right thing. Honour was satisfied. There's also another story, which again it's impossible to confirm or deny, that Gesualdo killed his son from his first marriage because apparently he looked suspiciously like Maria's lover. As you can see, there's a lot of rather dark stuff around this. Well, Gesualdo wasn't officially punished, but then he seems to have taken the job largely on himself. He became very reclusive, obsessively devoted to music to an extent that it was considered worthy of note among his contemporaries and devoted himself in later in life to extreme forms of religious penance. Some people have described it as, frankly, masochistic with bizarre religious devotions. I've got a passage here from a contemporary account which I'll read to you. The great misfortune was that through the agency of God, Gesualdo was assailed and afflicted by a vast horde of demons, which gave him no peace for many days on end, unless ten or twelve young men, whom he kept specially for the purpose, were to beat him violently three times a day, during which operation he was wont to smile joyfully. Good Lord, it's all very scandalous stuff. But what makes this all the more remarkable is that the music itself does seem to be the project of a very strange, tortured mind. Let's have an example of this right away. It's the beginning of one of the most famous of all Gesualdo's madrigals, Moro Lasso al Mio Duolo, I Die Languishing of Grief. And just listening to these amazing swooning, downward-falling chromatic harmonies, it really sounds like it. Extraordinary chromatic sliding harmonies. Um, they've even been compared to the beginning of Wagner's Tristan prelude. Certainly, they seem to look forward to something way beyond Gesualdo's age. It's hard to believe a composer could produce sounds like that in the 16th century. 
Certainly, this fascinated Peter Warlock, who partly wrote that study of Gesualdo, musician and murderer, and it was a great influence on Warlock's own harmonic thinking, especially Warlock's beautiful but intensely depressive song cycle, The Curlew. If you listen to the extract we're just going to play you now, you can hear a similar attitude towards extraordinary shifting harmonies that don't quite lead where you expect, often very chromatic, and often producing a very similar, very melancholy, introspective kind of effect. Gesualdo reinvented by a 20th century English chromatic. The same sort of sliding chromatic lines, plaintive changes of harmony there, very much influenced by Gesualdo. Well, was Gesualdo such an anachronism? Does he, was he a lone prophet looking forward to what happened in the 20th century, an expressionist way ahead of his time? Well, not entirely, because if you look at the 16th century Italian madrigal, as it was taking form around Gesualdo's time and before his time, it was indeed highly expressive, and sometimes in a way that's quite surprising. This new form, the madrigal, was influenced by the Renaissance humanists and their rediscovery of the writings of the ancient Greeks. One of the things that fascinated those Italian humanists was when they read accounts of music in the writings of people like Plato, in Aristotle, or in Homer's writings. There they discovered that music is often credited with extraordinary powers to move people to the point where they almost lose consciousness of themselves or lose their own volition. And it was struck many of these humanists that it was strange that music didn't seem to have that effect in their own days. Maybe something was wrong. Maybe music had become too obsessed with form, with ideal beauty. And the time had come to look back to music's expressive roots, get back to its contact with language and the direct expression of human emotions. So you have groups like the Florentine Camerata, as they're called, formed, to get together to decide how they could revive this spirit of ancient Greek music. And one of the consequences of that was, indeed, the birth of opera. And the madrigal, in a way, grows out of this. It's the miniature form. If opera is the macro form, then madrigal is the micro version of this. One thing that was cultivated in the madrigal was an intense kind of recitative-like style, a kind of parlando style, where music becomes almost like speech. It imitates the rhythms of speech and expresses intense emotions in a very concentrated way, directly related to the words of the language. Also, often with a very expressive use of dissonance. 
is based on short poems, usually without any refrain-like repetitions, which themselves conveyed intense emotions in a kind of stream of consciousness way, so that the effect was something much more realistic, more, more realistic than artificial. And it was often particularly focused on the pleasures and pains of erotic love expressed in a equally intense, tortuous paradoxes. This is typical of the sonnets of the famous Italian poet Petrarch, and it's not without parallel. Certainly there's an influence showing in the sonnets of Shakespeare later. Well, we have an example of a composer who came before Gesualdo to put this a bit in context and certainly mastered the magical, one of the first masters of the magical, and that's the Flemish-born composer Jacob Arkadelt, who died in 1568. There were a lot of Flemish composers or composers from the northern countries who came to work in Italy during this period, and they were often very influential on its style. Now, here's an example of Arkadet writing madrigals. It's called O Felice Occhi Mei, O My Happy Eyes. Now, as you listen to this, you'll notice that it sounds in some ways not unlike the church music of the time, the church polyphony of Palestrina, for instance. But then from time to time, the settings change and it becomes chordal, not flowing counterpoint with separate lines, but all the voices singing together, particularly focusing in on particular words. And towards the end, when you get to the phrase, io moro, I die, then you can hear particularly, everyone's focused together on this. Archidelt wants us to hear and experience those words almost as though we're feeling that emotion with him. Jacob Arkadelt's O Felice Occhimei, or My Happy Eyes, one of the earliest examples of the Italian 16th century madrigal. That's certainly very expressive, but if you heard that without knowing that it was a madrigal, that it was secular music, would you be able to tell that it was secular music and not church music? The two styles seem to merge over into each other quite a lot. What Gesualdo did was to take the madrigal style and intensify it to a truly extraordinary degree. We just heard a little sample a little earlier in those harmonies from the beginning of Moro Lasso. 
It seems that Gesualdo was moving towards a much more intensely expressive chromatic style of writing with plenty of surprise harmonies. To take an example from our own time, a kind of parallel, you could see there was a great deal of extremely expressive and daring rock music in the 1960s and 70s. But then along comes someone like Frank Zappa and brings ideas from classical contemporary music, from folk music and religious music across the world, and his own wild imaginings, and turns it into something completely different so that it seems to transcend all the boundaries. And that's certainly what it seems that Gesualdo did. He was a huge influence at first for a while on a small number of people, like the composer Sigismondo Dindia, who was fascinated by what Gesualdo achieved in these madrigals. Well, it's time to take, I think, a closer look at some of this music. We'll be looking at madrigals that are all from books five and six of his complete madrigal edition, and they're all published in his lifetime. They're all in five parts, though they do use different combinations of five voices, so from time to time you'll see a sixth singer creeping onto the stage to join Exaudi. We'll start with, from book five, the madrigal Dolcissima Mia Vita, my sweetest love, why do you delay the longed-for comfort? Uh, this is very expressive in the way that Gesualdo handles this, and typical of the way that this music very carefully follows the words. Listen to the phrase, why do you delay? A che tardate? That longed-for comfort that the music is listened for, you can feel that the music is indeed holding back the moment of resolution and delaying it, a kind of sweet lingering out of the pain of waiting, the, the sweetness of the agony, and finally the pleasure in the moment of resolution at the end. feeling of release just at the end there, beautifully calculated, and he does indeed delay that moment just as the words say. Then comes another magic we'll be hearing in a moment called O Dolorosa Gioia, O Sorrowful Joy, O Sweet Pain, by which this soul is saddened and dies happy. I think we're beginning to get the idea of the emotional content of these madrigals here. Typical paradox of so many of the magical texts of its time. But no one else makes this kind of thing so extremely expressive as Gesualdo. Let's just listen to the beginning of this magical O Dolorosa Gioia. It's very difficult to get any sense of key, of foundation in the music. It's kind of wandering, searching in all kinds of directions. It's tortuous but exquisite, like someone playing with pain. And finally, in this first group, we'll hear Merce Grido Piangendo, Mercy, I cry as I weep. It ends with another of those sort of 
despairing and yet ecstatic phrases, io moro, I die. Now, there are other magical composers of the time who sometimes will extract a kind of sense of humor in passages like that, as though there was a sort of double entendre work in the music. This kind of dying reminds one of the French idea of le petit mort, or the kind of swoon that happens at the height of sexual ecstasy. But Jesualdo almost seems to be thinking of something closer to real death. If you listen to these chromatic lines, they rise half a step and then fall a whole step, interweave with each other. The harmonies are even more obscure than anything we've heard before, and they combine to make this extraordinary languid counterpoint. Sounds almost 20th century, doesn't it? Not 16th century. Extraordinary music. Well, let's hear these three madrigals now from book five of Jesualda's madrigals. Dolcissima mia vita, o dolorosa gioia, and merce grido piangendo. Oh, my God. 
Thank you, James Weeks and Igzaudi, for those remarkable performances of three madrigals from book five of Gesualdo's madrigals. Take it from me, ladies and gentlemen, those are extremely difficult to sing. Some amazing harmonic surprises in there. It really is quite unlike any other music I know, and yet so much of its time, and yet at the same time so much outside its time. Can't think of anything quite like it. And if anything, that impression intensifies when we get to book six in the series. I'm presuming that there was some kind of chronological scheme in the way that Gesualdo published the Madrigals, although maybe some musicologist will tell me I'm wrong there. We'll be hearing one in a moment, a Madrigal from book six, which made a huge impression on the composer Igor Stravinsky. In fact, Gesualdo's music in general made an enormous impression on Stravinsky. Stravinsky even made a pilgrimage to Venosa and to the castle where the Gesualdos had lived and was horrified to find it in a state of almost total ruin and emptiness, as he put it in his account, furnished, as one would imagine, by a kind of latter-day Woolworths. Um, and he mentioned, he told the locals who gathered around curiously to find out what on earth he was doing there about the famous composer, the extraordinary composer who had killed his wife and her lover, and then began to realize that people in the crowd seemed to think that he was talking about himself. <laughs> and that maybe one or two of them weren't entirely sure this was a good thing, whereupon he bid a dignified retreat. But we'll be hearing Stravinsky's musical reaction to Gesualdo in a moment, before we hear one of the madrigals that so inspired him. It's called Belta Poike Tasente, Beauty, since you depart, take as you do my heart. Take also my torments. For a tormented heart can indeed feel the pain of death, but a soul without its heart can feel no grief. Here's a little phrase just to latch onto when you listen to this, which is to show how closely Gesualdo identifies with the words. It's the phrase, porta i tormenti, take my torments. And you can actually hear this extraordinary chromatic line that does suggest a sort of carrying of something, carrying something upwards, but also with an incredibly painfully almost intense expression behind it. This is the passage. just leaves it hanging in the air like that at the end. But also there's interesting use of contrast in this magical. If you think back to that piece of Arkadelt we played earlier on, Jakob Arkadelt, there was a contrast between the flowing contrapuntal style, which seemed almost like church polyphony, and that much more recitativo-like style, where everybody sings together in the same rhythms and to make sure that we hear the words. And there is a striking example of that shortly after that passage in this magical, where everyone sings the line, e un alma senza core, but a soul without its heart. This is an, obviously a sentence that Gesualdo wants us to hear. He wants us to take this idea for ourselves. So he stresses it by having everybody sing together in the same rhythm, as you'll here it forms an interesting kind of climax in this madrigal. So here then from book six is number two, Belta Poike Tasenti.
extraordinary, the bright purity of that G major chord at the end almost seems like a surprise after those extraordinary harmonies that come before it. And you can certainly see why something like that might have appealed so strongly to Stravinsky. Stravinsky, in fact, reworked that madrigal in his own extraordinary way as the third movement of a piece he called Monumentum Pro Gesualdo di Venosa ad Sidi Annum, a monument for Gesualdo of Venosa in the 1500s. But what Stravinsky does with this music just shows how extraordinarily different his music is from Gesualdo, from Gesualdo's basically 16th century polyphonic thinking. Now Stravinsky, the way he treats this music when he arranges it for an orchestra of different groups and disperses the ideas, the harmonies around these different parts of the ensemble, it's almost like he's playing the piece on the piano and thinking, oh, that's an amazing chord, aha, and lighting on it, and then that's an amazing chord too. It sounds so completely different, and in a way it stresses the fact that Gesualda is such a linear composer, that the way the lines flow on is so important to his way of thinking. When you hear how Stravinsky takes that element out and focuses in on the harmonies. In fact, Stravinsky did like to compose at the piano. He actually particularly liked, I'm told, to compose at an out-of-tune piano because he liked the kind of mess of overtones around the notes. And you can imagine him relishing each one of these chords as they come along. So let's hear now this third movement from Stravinsky's Monumentum for Gesualdo, his arrangement, if that's quite the word, of Gesualdo's Belta Poi Che Tassenti.
Now, it's important to stress that Stravinsky didn't actually change any of the notes in Gesualdo's original there, because it sounds so completely different, doesn't it? It sounds like a completely different experience. Well, what does Stravinsky do there? Well, some people have accused Stravinsky of actually missing the point in Jazualdo in his arrangement there, or his reworking. He's been accused of musical distortion by one critic. He's so clearly missed the spirit of Jesualdo's original. It was felt. Well, yes, that's a possibility, but there's also what is sometimes described as creative misunderstanding, which can itself lead to some very interesting products in itself. So at this point, I'd like to bring in Exaudi's director, James Weeks, who's been listening to that with us here in the hall. And I, James, I don't know how well you know that reworking, that extraordinary reworking by Stravinsky, but what's your impression of it hearing it just then? Well, I think, I think everyone here will feel at first uh, hearing it's quite clear what it's doing, and it's a very perplexing thing altogether, I think. Not only does it at first sight seem to miss the point, but it doesn't really seem to relate at all to the, the words of the Gesualdo at all. It's as if Stravinsky's just taken one or two aspects that interest him about the music and ignored the rest, which, as you say, is absolutely fair enough. But what always surprises me about Stravinsky's interest in Gesualdo, and it went, in fact, beyond this piece, he wrote, um, in fact, completed some incomplete Gesualdo pieces towards the end of his life. I don't really understand what he was interested in in Gesualdo. They seem such different temperaments. Um, they're both very self-conscious composers, and I think the, the, the strangeness of the composerly act appeals to Stravinsky's imagination. The way Gesualdo is trying to estrange us from normal modes of musical discourse, I think, chimes definitely with the way Stravinsky approached alienation and cutting up his materials. Um, but on every other level, it does seem indeed to be a, a strange marriage. Um, and I think, uh, if I'm honest, um, I wouldn't say that he didn't know what he was doing. I think he did know what he was doing. Um, he was emphasizing, if you like, the, the verticality of the harmony, the way one chord moves to another in a very strange way. But whether he adds anything else is another question altogether. And one wonders why, for instance, he didn't take the Gesualdo and use it as the basis of another piece, perhaps with a little bit more Stravinsky in. Well, Stravinsky did say once, a good composer doesn't imitate, he steals. On another occasion, he referred to himself as a musical magpie. As soon as I see a bright, shiny object that attracts me, I grab it. I'm not interested in where it comes from or what it's about. And that, that piece almost seems to epitomize that way of thinking, doesn't it's, it? It does, almost to a perverse degree. But yeah. it's a fascinating marriage of two very different composers, I think. So... Comparing that with that little bit of Warlock that we heard earlier from the Curlier, now that doesn't sound like Gesualdo, but in a way it seems to me that Warlock is probably a lot closer to, to what Gesualdo was really about. Would you agree? Well, I think so. I mean, for a start, Warlock was very interested in what early music was for its own sake, and he was very interested in counterpoint and line and chromaticism. So I think on that uh, basis, yes, Warlock is much more similar to Gesualdo in temperament, and of course he was also interested in exploring the dark sides of human experience. Um, but I think Gesualdo's closest contemporaries are indeed all the expressionist moderns, the way that he seems to be pushing expression through a, a sort of sieve that it doesn't quite fit into, um, twisting things out of their normal shape. Um, again, I think is, is something that uh, perhaps really only comes to the fore in music at the beginning of the 20th century, I mean, all the expressionist um, works by Schoenberg and others. 
Yes, it isn't really stretching it in some ways to, to compare even someone like Schoenberg with Gesualdo, is it? There's a similar incredible stretched, as you put it, intensity about the writing. I think so, and, and they were also doing it for the, a similar reason, perhaps, to find new expressivity, to find new places of expression, human expression, human emotion to go to. Yes, it is, it, even amongst the Italian madrigalists, it's unusual to find a composer with this, just this, this degree of yeah, almost desperate interest, isn't it? Isn't that, Absolutely, yeah. yes. Mm. I mean, he's a total one-off in that respect. Mm. It's also interesting, I, I, I recall that both Gesualdo and Peter Warlock, it's been suggested that both of them were manic depressives. So maybe there's another kind of affinity going on there, possibly. Well, let's judge for ourselves as we hear three more madrigals <coughs> from book six of Gesualdo's madrigals. We begin with Tu piangi, Ophelia mia. You weep, O oh my Phyllis, and think thus to quench that ardent flame which so sweetly does inflame me. And this is followed by Dei com in van sospiro. Ah, how I sigh for you in vain. And then, a very interesting conceit, this one. Arditi zanzaretta, a bold mosquito bites the woman who destroys my heart and keeps it in such cruel pain.
Well, thank you, Exaudi, for those extraordinary performances. I was sitting there listening to that with the hair standing up on the back of my neck. I can tell you, some extraordinary, beautiful moments in that. But I was, I have to say, equally admiring, James, of the way you brought that off, because I can remember listening to recordings of Jesuado's music and performances of it. Indeed, at university, I tried to take part in, I say tried to take part in a choral performance of some Jesuado myself, and it was a horrible disaster, because... <laughs> It is extremely difficult to perform, and I think it would be very interesting if you could give us a kind of a performer's eye view or ear view of why it's so difficult. I mean, is, is it just the fact that he, he shifts harmonically so much, 
Well, that's certainly part of it. Yes, I can't stress enough how difficult it is to perform, um, to perform these pieces. Actually, um, it is very difficult, and I think you can probably hear um, what's difficult about it. For a start, um, the uh, chromaticisms that you mention, just going from chord to chord, something that one normally doesn't find very difficult, suddenly becomes extremely difficult uh, in this music when really any chord could follow any other. Um, but there are other difficulties as well, because Gesualdo is not just interested in chromaticism and strange chords after each other. Um, he's also interested in completely unexpected changes of flow, if you like, like changes of gear of the music. I'm sure you heard those as well. From one extremely stretched out passage suddenly will lurch almost into a really, really fast bit in which all the parts kind of tumble in over each other and get in each other's way. And the feeling of getting in each other's way vocally is something that actually makes it very, very difficult to perform. Whereas something by um, Monteverdi, expressive as he is, will nonetheless flow in a way which is far more regular. Gesualdo is at pains, really. He's at pains to, to make it difficult in every way for you to just to keep going um, as performers, which of course is you know, part of his aesthetic. I'm interested you say that because I'm thinking, you know, I once also mistakenly had a go at trying to play the finale of Beethoven's Hamatophia Sonata, and oh dear. But, um, but you realize when you do tackle something like that that the, the difficulty is part of the effect. He actually wants the effect of someone struggling to get across. Do you think, do you think Gesualdo, is, this, is, this is also part of his expressive will, he doesn't want it too perfect, he wants to hear you, you straining to get there. Absolutely, I think the idea of tortured emotion or, or things kind of warped or bent or stretched out of their natural shape is very much part of Gesualdo's emotional world. It's part of the text that he chooses. He always chooses the most um, extraordinarily expressive and opposite images, um, joy and grief, and puts them together, as you say. But somehow they're not in the a kind of um, sane equilibrium with each other. They just lurch from one to the other. So again, I think it's simply a correlative of what he wants to express emotionally. Bipolar music. Mm. Well, you, you had a, an example, I think, for just one example of, of one aspect of how difficult it is from the beginning of one of the magicals we've already heard from book six. Um, yes, in fact, at the end of Tu piangi o fili mia, um, when uh, we all pile in on the phrase tanto pio vampi di vivace adore, um, make my heart blaze even more brightly. Um, and at this point, the music just takes off, um, all the parts um, almost rushing over each other. There's hardly any room to breathe. So even though um, it's, a, it's a moment of joy and excitement, it's somehow over-intense. He's, he's pushed it over um, beyond joy into something that's almost uh, pathological in a way. Feverish. Feverish, yes. absolutely. Um, and the lines um, not only pile over each other, but they, they leap about all over the score. So again, you, you never know quite where you're going to go next. Yes, some extremely difficult twists and turns there, but lovely ensemble, I have to say. Well done. Well, if it felt anything like, less like a mad dash, I don't think we'd be uh, quite doing it justice. So. <laughs> I don't think quite so mad. They're splendid. <laughs> well, actually, there, there, was, there was one point, actually, about Merce Grido Piangendo, which we heard earlier on. I think our bass um, 
John Sanders had an interesting point about just how difficult that was for him. John, would you, would you care to say a few words about that ending of that piece? Well, I think as, as a singer, you know when you're approached um, and asked to sing a bit of Gesualdo, you're not expected to be experiencing the same sort of harmonic language as, as you would with his contemporaries. Um, certainly through our rehearsals, we've, I think, really got inside the harmonies and understood and, and got sort of on top of most of Gesualdo's tricks. Um, and we've, I hope, it's come across that we've sort of mastered most of that. But what we've certainly discovered is that there are some moments where Gesualdo does even what you couldn't possibly imagine he would do. And the re entire rehearsal has broken down in just in sheer disbelief at the direction in which the music has gone. The bit we were just talking about, at the end of the Merce, there's a sort of cadence which looks like it's kind of in G major-ish. And he moves as if he might go down to E minor, which is a kind of typical thing that he might do. Um, and actually the resolution of the chord is in G sharp major, which is such a sort of lurch upwards, it really feels like you've just gone over a humpback bridge and left all your insides somewhere completely <laughs> outside. Um, and that's just typical. So even, even Gesualdo, who you already expect to do unexpected things, always has another surprise. I wonder if you could just hear that a bit to illustrate. Maybe we'll see if your insides get left on the back bridge. <laughs> Yes, I see what you mean. <laughs> Extraordinary. To, to bring you back, James, something else we, we tripped up on when we tried to perform Gesualdo at university it was some of the contrapuntal flowing music, the rapid music, it's not just that the voices pile on top of each other very rapidly. It's not sort of incredibly fluent writing in the way you say come across in someone like Palestrina or William Byrd. It's actually quite difficult, isn't it? No, and I don't think that's a mark of Gesualdo's incompetence either. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. Um, but all the lines, again, are, are kind of twisted out of normal shape. So just when you think you're going to go down, you leap up a fifth or something like that. Or a soprano will suddenly scale an unexpected... Um, peak. Um, it's almost surreal sometimes, the things you're um, asked to do in the middle of a line. Um, you were talking to me earlier, James, and you mentioned that you'd also been doing some of Gesualdo's liturgical music, his church music, which can be equally extraordinary, can't it? You mentioned the tenebrae, the service of darkness, which takes part of the Easter ritual. Um, very penitential, again, so it seems to chime in very much with these kind of dark preoccupations of Gesualdo. Um, does it help you when you're <laughs> trying to interpret this music, trying to make sense of it. Does it help you to think about the man? Does, does the, the legends about the man, do they help you make sense of the music? Or is it ultimately just the music that matters? Well, I think it's reassuring to know that such strange music came from such a strange man. There's no doubt about that. Um, on the other hand, I do think that the music stands on its own. And when you're actually performing the music, um, you're not thinking about Gesualdo's self-flagellation or his murders or his... Um, um, obsessive melomania. You're just thinking really about the music and the way um, the emotion is is twisted in that. And I think really that that's what makes him still interesting to us, the fact that we don't need this kind of crutch of his biography um, to be interested in what he does. He, uh, the music itself, I think, speaks for itself. Yes, it really does. I think we've all been experiencing that today, listening to this extraordinary music. In a way, I suppose it's, it's comparable with Wagner. There are things one knows about Wagner that one wishes one didn't. 
And yet listening to a piece like, a work like Parsifal, it's, it's hard to imagine that the man once read about could have written something as extraordinary as that with, with its emphasis on the idea of compassion, redeeming compassion. Where did that come from? I, I suppose the thought that came to me was a, a marvelous line from one of W.B. Yeats's poems where he says, the intellect of man is forced to choose perfection of the life or of the work. It seems that in Gesualdo's case, the choice was pretty obvious, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's interesting uh, what you say about um, Wagner writing a, a work that you can't imagine such a man would have written. Um, I'd like to bring uh, the Tenebrae responsories back in here and talk about those. Um, you, uh, the audience may or may not be familiar with those pieces. Um, but although they are indeed works for the uh, period of Holy Week, and all the texts are pretty much about the suffering of Jesus um, and the, um, the self-pity, really, of the more penitential psalms. Somehow, um, and I think this is a measure of Gesualdo's greatness again, he manages to universalize um, the statements he makes in the Tenebrae Responsories. Um, whereas in the madrigals, you feel it's the, um, the beating heart of one man. Um, in the Tenebrae Responsories, um, somehow the, the need to write sacred music and to make a, a universal statement brings out a, a quite different side to him. Nonetheless, he manages to uh, integrate all his tortured harmonies and extraordinary um, chromatic passages into that uh, music. Well, just to clarify the picture, let's hear a little bit now of Gesualdo's great Tenebrae setting.
listening to this music today with you and these lovely performances you've given us, um, I, the word that kept coming to my mind, in spite of all the, the, the tortuousness and the feverish intensity and the obvious erotic charge, was still spirituality. There is something extraordinarily exalted about this. I suppose, you know, the Christian tradition has left us with this idea that you have eroticism here and spirituality there and never the twain shall meet. There certainly are religious traditions, even within Catholicism, where the two do combine. I think in a modern, modern work like some of the works of Szymanowski, for instance, where you feel this comes together very clearly. Do you think these are just earthly expressions of tortured erotic desire, or do you feel that they transcended in some way? Well, um, I'd like to say that I think all music is in some way spiritual, um, if it's achieving some kind of human purpose. Um, so, and I'm not sure I'd make the distinction between um, a kind of human eroticism and a kind of spirituality um, in that way. I think I'd prefer to uh, think of Gesualdo as um, a, a confessional sort of artist, certainly someone whose life um, is allowed to penetrate into his work. But I think that means that there's a lot of truth in what Gesualdo says um, to us as humans. We, we might not... Um, understand where he is or where he's gone um, because he obviously was a very unusual man and perhaps we wouldn't want to follow him into some of the places um, that he's gone. But I think, again, it's a, it's, it shows the greatness of the work that there is a kind of kernel of truth um, amongst all the kind of overindulgence of the music that I think, um, you know, he's laid his soul bare and there's a great amount of truth in that. So in that respect, I think both the madrigals and the tenebrae responses, the sacred music, are in the widest sense spiritual. Well, thank you for that. Very nicely put. Um, before we hear the last three madrigals from Gesualdo's book six, has anybody in the audience any question they'd like to make or any comment they'd like to make on what they've heard so far? Um, somebody here, would you wait for the roving mic to come to you? And uh, then you can say what it is you have to say. Yes, uh, Stephen, thank you very much. That was wonderful. Do you feel like me that we're now hearing 16th century music with a distinctly 21st century harmonic intensity, very much like the spectral music of Claude Vivier, Twistron, Mirailles, etc.? This is the 16th century brought to life into spectral 21st century. That's how I see it. Well, thank you for that. I'd better explain about spectralism, if I can, in a few words, because it's an extremely complicated subject. But some of the French com avant-garde composers towards the end of the 20th century and into the beginning of the 21st, like Tristan Murray, have been fascinated by what they call the natural overtones of harmonies and how these relate to the sonorities of instruments and have constructed harmonies that are often based on this kind of overtonal natural resonance idea. And yes, I can imagine listening to some of those things. You think Gesualdo was playing around with the same kind of extraordinary acoustic phenomena, don't you? Maybe that's something that Stravinsky was trying to point out when he has, say, just the horns play one chord. It's like he's saying, listen to that. Isn't that extraordinary? Does that, does that strike you in the same way? Yes, I, I hear that. That's mm. exactly it. And I can hear that music mm. being uh, re-performed by Claude Vivier and so on. That's how yes. I see it. But I think, you know, we, we talk about art often in very historical terms. We say someone looks forward to something, someone looks backward to something, but some of the greatest art really does seem to stand completely outside the historical process, doesn't it? And as though it's operating in another dimension completely. Anybody else anything they'd like to say? Oh, gentleman at the back there. Thank you. Um, this sort of follows on from what you've just been talking about, and it is slightly technical, but do you believe that these madrigals would have been sung using uh, some sort of mean tone temperament or uh, whole tone temperament? 
Well, that is a nice technical question, a meaty one, probably too meaty for me. But um, I think we ought to explain that actually our, our modern hearing is to some extent conditioned by the fact that the piano as the basis, or piano tuning as the basis of so much modern music and so many media in the West. And on the piano, where every tone is equal to every tone and every semitone is every, equal to every semitone, that does seem to be a fairly just arrangement of things, but that's not the kind of tuning you arrive at if you try to follow the natural resonances, the overtones in things. And indeed, in Gesualdo's time, it seems there were all sorts of extraordinary tunings available for um, performers. And Gesualdo himself, it seems, had a remarkable instrument. I can't remember the name of it, but it had 51 strings that enabled him to sort of tune, say, three or four different versions of A-sharp so that he could try different ways of how one chord slid into another. Uh, James, I mean, do you think that, you know, when you're performing this, in a way, it's easier for us to, to perform someone like Gersuada today because we've got the, the sound of the piano and its tuning in our head? I think um, possibly. I mean, certainly we're now more used to extremely chromatic music and we learn it on the piano, so therefore we're sort of in some ways um, responding to the, the equal temperament um, of it. Um, in answer to the gentleman's question, um, a lot of research is going into this, and indeed Italian groups at the moment are um, experimenting with singing these uh, madrigals um, quite specifically um, according to um, quite rigid tuning systems. Um, I myself I don't know. I think what one naturally does um, as a singer is to tune each chord to the natural um, harmonics, if you like. Um, and the question, of course, arises, how do you then get back to the original chord again, having taken some extraordinary chromatic detours? Perfectly honest to say that we're feeling our way with this. Um, other groups have spent a lot of time attempting to sing in mean tone or even Pythagorean tone um, for medieval uh, music. Um, and the results, I think, have been uh, a mixed, interesting but mixed. I think what one naturally does is, I don't know, perhaps the most obvious thing to do, which is literally do, to take each chord as it comes uh, and trying to tune that perfectly. Gesualdo was interested in going beyond you know, just what his mean-toned harpsichord or whatever could do. He was interested, as you say, in finding different tunings for chromatic um, intervals, which suggests he was trying to find, um, well, I mean, all temperament is attempting to find the most um, in tune or natural system. So, again, I think the jury's out slightly on that, um, but there's a lot of very interesting research going on. Well, I certainly remember this morning in the rehearsal when I think you spent 10 minutes trying to tune one chord, wasn't it? That was quite an amazing moment. And, and, and we got there in the end. You certainly did. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, it all sounds right listening to it. And yet, you know, I have to stress, an enormous amount of hard work went into preparing this. I heard it with my own ears. Anybody else a question? Gentleman over here. This is a somewhat simpler one. Do any of the singers have perfect pitch? And if so, does that uh, complicate matters? Oh, that's a very good question. Hands up, those of you who've got perfect pitch. Not one. <laughs> Um, there's, a kind of, uh, there's a kind of strong relative pitch going on. I, d I don't know if many people know, but Exaudi specializes both in early music and the performance of very chromatic contemporary music. So um, we're used to working through um, the most difficult chromatic uh, movement uh, between voices. So um, it's not absolutely essential to have perfect pitch, but you sort of need to know that whereabouts you are generally. 
Yes, I, I remember actually talking to one member of Peter Phillips's group, the Talis Scholars, who did have perfect pitch, or I imagine she still does, and saying that while this was an advantage in many, many works, in Gesualdo it wasn't. <laughs> actually, it's like a false compass that leads you in the wrong direction, which is fascinating. So we've got one more question over here. Um, mine's a simpler question. I'm interested in performance contemporary with the composer, and I wonder on what occasions and by whom these madrigals were performed during the composer's time and shortly thereafter, because they seem so demanding in technical terms and in terms of both the unity of the group singing and also the, the locale for the performance. Can you enlighten me, please? Well, there was a lot of um, interest in very complicated madrigals, especially uh, centered on the courts of central and, well, in fact, all of Italy, in fact. Um, and it's not just Gesualdo which demands a kind of professional standard of performance. Monteverdi, uh, likewise, Luzzaschi, um, Wert, all sorts of other very extraordinary madrigalists. Generally speaking, these, the, these are pieces written for the interest and the entertainment of arist the aristocracy at courts um, in which research into unusual ways of performance was very much uh, part of what they wanted to do, especially uh, at Ferrara, where um, Gesualdo uh, visited uh, Luzzaschi. So these would have been performed by highly specialized court musicians um, and would have circulated uh, between courts and, of course, publishing centers in cities. It's not like the English magical tradition, uh, an essentially amateur tradition. Um, I mean, there are madrigals written for amateurs in Italy, but these very modernistic ones, if you like, uh, would have been written for yeah, highly trained professionals. Um, Gesualdo tried to establish at his own um, court a band of singers that would do, do his bidding. Uh, I'm not quite sure how successful he was, but uh, that, was, that was his ideal, that he would almost have his own ensemble to try things out with. He was also writing, as you might say, for a connoisseur audience as well, wasn't he? Which might explain why he's able to do such extraordinary things. It's a bit like Haydn writing his string quartets and knowing that he's got very sharply attuned and trained ears and thinking, right, I'll really surprise them by just changing that or making that slightly different. And it's so a different kind of effect from his symphony. So quite a small, intimate gathering of people who he would expect to be able to understand. Yes, and, and as social conditions changed in Italy and the decline of the aristocracy through the 17th century... Um, uh, gathered pace, of course, this music wilted and withered on the, on the branch because there was much less interest in it uh, among you know, everybody else, basically. Well, I think it's time we heard our final three madrigals from Gesualdo's book six. We're going to hear, first of all, Ardo per te mio bene. I burn for you, dear love, but my burning breathes sweet breezes around my heart. Then comes that one we heard a little bit of just at the beginning of the program, Moro lasso al mio duolo. I die languishing of grief, and the person who can give me life, alas, kills me and does not wish to give me aid. And finally, al mio gioio il ciel si fa sereno. At my joy, the heavens have become serene, and the sun gilds the floral locks of the meadow.